Welcome to episode 818 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right here, team. Welcome along to episode one. I'm oh, sorry, 818 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James. Oh, how you go, mate? I am pretty good, Bevan. How about yourself? I'm saying we're doing a Zoom call today because it's a bit of a funny day for both of us. John's looking a bit like George Michael in the 80s. He's got the he's got the brown face, got you know a little bit of gravelly kind of facial happening. The cool blonde hair is shining off your light in your, in your room. Jeez, you're throwing all the compliments my way this morning. I have a little faith. I gotta have faith. How's John? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, a little bit. Of, I could show you my chafing. I chafed the crap out of my arms on uh, on Sunday for a swim we did, and I'm I'm suffering a bit from this, Bevan. Yeah, chafing's like blisters, chafing. You know, the little things that actually don't really impact you, but really do impact you. If you know what I mean. And it was purely down to operator error because it wasn't a problem with the wetsuit. So I'm in this wetsuit plenty of times, just mustn't have quite got it in right. Or I got some, I've got lots of hair all over me, bloody got some hair stuck in there. Oh, and I could feel it early on. And I was like, there's nothing I can do. I'm in the middle of a harbor and uh, I'm suffering a bit. But other than that, Bevan, all is good. Through the pain to the glory. I'm talking is proudly brought to you by our fantastic patrons Luke, the cover, Parker. And interestingly with Luke, I opened up my Facebook today to have just literally when we started talking with Bevan, um, because uh, just to get out a sort of discussion of the week ready, first thing I saw was Luke Parker getting married last weekend with Charlotte Steele, who both came on, on Epic Camp last oh, year, uh, and they must have got married, I guess, at the weekend, and the weather was, fa- if it was last weekend, the weather was fantastic. Oh, congratulations to both of you. How cool was that? Okay, we've also got Annette, the Lightning Lee. I saw a picture of her the other day as well. She's installing, getting a new driveway laid down. Exciting week for them. <laughs> Life in the adult lane. Uh, and then we've got Aaron. Uh, how do you say that last one? Tauntaun. Torn, what's Tauntaun? Tauntaun is off Star Wars, off uh, The Empire Strikes Back. It's those big white beasts, you know, in the opening sort of scenes. And uh, oh, is it right. Luke Skywalker get, get, uh, chops one open or goes inside one, or is it Han Solo, one way or the other? And it's those big white beasts. It's torn, torn. Now, is that an Empire Strikes Back? It is, yeah. The very start of Empire Strikes yeah, Back. because I haven't seen that one, so there you go. Oh, my God. What oh, have you been doing with your life? I know. It's crazy I haven't. It's crazy I haven't. I need to, but not... <sighs> Yes, I probably should do that. Anyway, in this week's show, we've got some news. We've got a hot topic. Not much news, to be honest. We've got a hot topic. We've got a, one of our Legends interviews, John. We have. I, earlier this morning, I spoke to Jamie Hunt. A lot of you guys will not have heard of the name Jamie Hunt. If you're a, a long-term triathlete in New Zealand, you will. He was a very good athlete in his day, but then started up two times you, which, uh, as we know, is a massive triathlon brand so a he was an awesome athlete b uh, started a, an amazing business and has gone on to other things and um yeah i think a lot of people would never have heard of him before and so i'm pretty pretty pleased to bring him to you because it's a pretty cool story but wanger of the week questions and answers at the end well john's put in the show notes here quite possibly one of the quietest weeks in the triathlon year when it comes to news no racing really happening although we did have the arena games which we will talk about soon but really kind of it's the in between moment isn't it Yes, we had a few races over the last few weeks, and we haven't got much coming up uh, for another couple of weeks. I'm at Texas is in 
two, two, two weeks' time, I think, and then we'll sort of start rolling into a few more with, obviously, the World Champs in May, which is going to be uh, building up nicely. But bugger all happening at the moment. Okay, one thing that did happen over the weekend is we did have the Arena Games. Um, they were in Germany. Now, I actually watched... I watched this. The problem for me is I got the PR release, so I, I saw who the female winner was straight away, mm-hmm. and it was pretty clear pretty early on who was going to win the female race. Um, are we going to get the results? No, let's not, because because uh, I, I actually managed to not see the results, and and I think if if you're not following triathlon news closely or going on all its websites, you can probably you could have missed it. It wasn't wasn't being bombarded all over social. Do you media. actually know the results? I do. Okay. Uh, And then I watched all the men's three races. Mm -hmm. Um, My overall thoughts, I was surprised the crowd wasn't bigger. Yeah, so was I. That was I had a quick scan through of it just for, for the show. And yeah, given it's in Germany, which is a real hotbed for triathlon, um the, there was a crowd there and they're making good noise so it's still yeah it was been. good like they created a good atmosphere for the amount of people there because it wasn't a huge stadium it was probably a good size swimming local swimming stadium mm. um you know but it was probably maybe a two-thirds half full yeah uh, we're talking a couple of hundred people i reckon oh yeah. and i reckon you're close to a thousand do you okay Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but, they, made, they made good noise. I just expected that to be more. I do would expect when they go to London, London. I would think there'll be a lot more. Um, so it wasn't a stellar field, but it, the men's race looked um, interesting. So I, I, I know who won it, but I don't know how it panned out. So I'd encourage you guys to maybe save it up and so watch it on the train. The I have for you, John, is first of all, um, would they be better off just having on the bike it being more of a time trial? Um, yeah, you can turn drafting off, and I think that would be better now that you mention it, because then the cyclist can, you know, use it as a strength that you know to sit in a group in Zwift when you're of relatively similar ability is not that hard. If you and if you, you miss a group, then it's bugger well, off. And, no. and again, I won't talk too many results, but one of the favourites missed the group in, in the first race, and it kind of really took them out for the whole thing. Mm. Um, and you kind of just think, in a race of this shorter distance, where they're swimming 200 metres, cycling, how far is it? Maybe 3K? 4K, I think. 4K, yeah. yeah. And then running a K. I don't know. I just kind of, I, I don't know. If, I, I kind of felt maybe if they made the group, the ride, more of just a TT, it could make the racing a bit more interesting. I think so. I, I totally agree with that. And, it, and it's easy to turn the draft function off on um, on Zwift. So yeah, let, let, let's put that to them, Bevan. Let's put yeah, it to them. That's, that's one thing. Um, I do think overall as a spectacle, it's pretty interesting watching. Uh, I do. One of the downfalls of it is, although I didn't see the female finish, but the male finish wasn't like a sprint finish. Hmm. But I don't know if you ever have to catch that sprint finish moment thing. And I think one thing that maybe Zwift could look at doing in events like this is they could have extra type of computer graphics, which would literally show more face-to-face close up front. And, <laughs> and I, I know that the Zwift faces don't have expression. Yeah. But, you know, like it's kind of like you see the runners get to the finish line. Now, they didn't show the very finish line of the very last run. It was watching the athletes on the treadmills. But – you know, you see in the Zwift, they just kind of get to the finish line and just kind of slow yeah. down. You know, it's, so it's when, real... when you when you hit different thresholds, maybe there could be some changes in yeah, facial expression. Yeah, and, and even the that. camera angle could get it quite close when it is a bit more one-on-one. Um, mm. Like it's early days. And overall, I, I thought it was enjoyable. I don't think it's the most stimulating thing I've seen in triathlon. Um, mm. But 
you know, I'd probably rather watch a good Super League race at this stage. Um, but overall, you know, it was passable fear. The format works really well, especially if you are thinking TV, because basically each race is about 10, 15 minutes long. Um, they're running fast. Mm. On those treadmills, they're doing like 242s or something, you know, like mm. they're smoking it. So mm. it's awesome to watch. And you see the athletes at the end of the race, and they are all on the floor. Like It mm. is bulls out effort. So, And I do like the format of the three races with a handicap leading into the last one. Um, just a couple of things. I just wonder if maybe the bike not being a draft would be actually a better race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, in those key moments, can you do a bit more of the technology to make it a bit more of a visual feast? Yeah. I, th- I think uh, I know Hayden Wilde is heading off to the Singapore round. Um, I saw him make a comment there. So that'll be good to see. And then we'll have when we have the the, the sort of the the World Championships, um, which I think is in London, uh, then maybe we'll see a few more of the big hitters there. So cool. Good times. One other just a little quick thing, which I, I don't know if we have to do because it's a pool-based event, but it'd be really cool if the crowds could be literally – like you have like just hit rails and the crowds are mm. literally right on top of the athletes. Because mm. in the stadium, it was cool. But imagine, if, you know, you're literally like a meter away from the athletes on the pool side as well. It'd be quite cool if you could kind of get that real in-close atmosphere, yeah. you know, with the athletes. Because you could just see the atmosphere was, as much as the crowd wasn't full, they definitely created an atmosphere. Mm. You know, nice. And you know what swimming pools are like, they echo anyway, so it's quite mm. that, you know. Okay, with another piece of news that we had coming up from the weekend was that the LA Triathlon is having a pro-am, and it's it's a bit weird because I've got a hundred million, hundred million, hundred thousand k on offer, but it's for the the CA pro-am race. Yeah, it's for the pro-am race. I just I find I find pro-am stuff in every sport's a bit weird. I don't really quite get it. Um, I kind of get it. You know, you're doing it to have some nice stories and what have you. I just find it weird this one that there's prize money on offer when you're going to. But from what I can understand of it, you'll have a Challenged Athletes Foundation doing the swim, the pro will do the bike, and then they'll have a celebrity or something like that doing the run. And you've got the big hitters here. You've got Gustav Eden, you've got uh, Jan Fredino, you've got Paula Finlay, um, uh, and a bunch of the other pros. Uh, I don't know. I just think it's a bit weird when you've got them going there. And it's not... There's not Where a, does the money go to? Does the money go to their charity or does it go to? I don't know. It didn't specify that. But then there's no sort of standalone race. I kind of get a pro-am like you maybe do that on Friday or Thursday and then you have a, a race on the on the, the Sunday or something like that. I kind of get, get that. With this, what it appears like to me, and I could be wrong, is that the pros are just going to be rocking up and doing the bike leg of a race and then buggering off and it just... Um, I don't know, just seems a bit weird. But hey, PTR are doing some great things. Um, uh, when I spoke to Jamie Hunt, you'll hear this interview later on in his new business. He's uh, going to be a bit involved with, with some of these um, PTO races, and he's saying they are going to be awesome. They're really trying to go full noise, and oh, really? Uh, he, he really encouraged age groupers to go check them out. So uh, there you go. Inside tip. It's exciting stuff. Uh, that's pretty much news. <laughs> so so let's go into the hot topic of the week. So the hot topic of the week was, which piece of triathlon equipment would you like to see banned in the sport? Matt Young has got to put, put a picture of you saying, ex-pros racing age group, Union 1, Kona, 70.3. Although that wasn't no, a pro no. race, was it? No, that wasn't. wasn't. 
no taking like matt's a yeah I, I get that people complaining and it, again we bring up today's interviewee jamie hunt uh, he was a it's not like i was a a, a bit of a hoax pro uh, for a couple of years but he was a legit pro he's now racing age group um but like what are we supposed to do you know there's no there's no option we can't race pro no. matt doesn't want us racing age group it's like what are you supposed to do so anyway but I, 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 I think he was kind of more taking the piss, but um, I actually think I actually think it's cool, mm. you know, because let, let's be honest, if you want to be the best age grouper in the world, you should be the best age person in your world, if you know what I mean. Like if you have a category for ex-pros, now in some ways ex-pros have a massive advantage because of where they've been in their career, but also they're a lot more tired, you know, mm. like their bodies are a lot more fatigued. But if you beat an ex-pro and you know, that's legit. Whereas if you beat if you you won your world age group but you let Jan Fredino was racing and he was in an elite category, it, it does take something away from you. Mm. So, so no, I'm I'm with you. Richard uh, Swan says get rid of watches. Geez, that's a big call. That would make a difference to the game, wouldn't it? Mm. Um Edward Evans got timing chips. Everyone has a shocker in those part with those in the past. Oh, don't know about that. Uh, Jonathan Graham, and uh, he says legs. Uh, let's see, off to see if I can find one that's actually not taking the piss. Alan Budgen says power meters, but I think he's taking the piss there as well. Um, Xavier Aaron- Coopop has got garments because they cause crashes in most dismounts and dis- lines. That's a legit point. You know, you see all sorts of people. Yeah, trying to start their watch around the start line, swerving all over the road and and causing incidents. I totally, totally get that. I'm not saying necessarily ban them, but they are a problem. Uh, God, you lots of people. There's, there's not too many serious ones. Ray, Raymond Malik says TT bikes. Interesting call. It would change the game. Uh, Peter William Van Dreer has got not equipment, but I would still like to see littering banned. People can use disposable cups, but there should be some garbage receptacle, um, receptacles shortly after you actually have to take your cup out and rappers land have to land inside the garbage can. We should stop allowing people to be litterbugs just for the sake of a couple of seconds faster. Vehicle. Mm. I'm, I'm with that. And I think we're going to definitely see a shift in that direction in the coming years and in, in terms of trying to make the sport more sustainable. I did a race in France in uh, Embram Man. And on that particular event, you had to carry your own cup. They, they supplied a cup and they supplied a little um, doodacky that you could put on your race belt. So you just slot it into there. And then whenever you went past an aid station, you could be filling up uh, and, and sort of self-service. So I think we're definitely going to hopefully head in that direction. Good old Michael Cunningham's got inflatable finish lines. Now, I don't think he's taking the piss here. I've emceed at so many races in the amount of times yeah. <laughs> they've proven to be a massive problem. I'm going to say 70% of the time they've proven to be a problem in the day. You know, either they blow over or they deflate, you know, like they, they do tend to be a problem most times I MC at a race. Mm. So it's, okay. that's a good call. Uh, Toby Schnell says, nothing, evolution is the name of the game. Luke G- Gilmore's got, they should ban shoes attached to the bike for mounting in, from T1. It's dangerous. And again, a lot of accidents occur. That's, again, a bit like the Garmin one we had before. That's a legitimate um, yeah. legitimate call. However, the, the downside of that is what are you going to do? Because then you have people running through transition in their cycling shoes, falling over, wearing down their cleats. Uh, and then, but wouldn't you just put them on when you get to your bike? Wouldn't you have to- you, 
then you're carrying them and then you're going to create this massive big log jam of people standing at the mountain line and then you've got to put your shoes on when you get there. So there's pros and cons to every every method. That I but think- no, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you just have to have your shoes beside your bike in the morning? Mm-hmm. And when you get to the bike, you put your shoes on. But then you've got to run through oh, transition true, yeah. wearing your shoes and you're going to slip, slip all over. And some transitions these days, they are hundreds long, of meters yeah. long. So I think on the, you know, the balancing everything out, I think the shoes pre-attached is good, but athletes need to do a bit of practice in terms of being able to hold their line. Michael Kennedy's got maybe the bikes that cost five figures. Going back to the roots of triathlon, where it's pretty much a bogan sport, I would say, though, that there's a piece of equipment that I'm looking forward to seeing that's the draft detection sensors giving athlete penalties rather than relying on the teams, TOs. Mm. Yeah. Have we had many serious ones here? Of actually, well, I think that's pretty uh, Chris, Chris Apple, swim skins. I can't see a reason they should be allowed. There is an advantage with it. Wetsuit is different as it can help regulate body temperature and cold water conditions. So, yep, swim skins, uh, that is one area that yeah could quite easily be band I and mean, then they give you a small advantage in terms of speed but it's minuscule it's more about um what you can actually wear underneath and in, in terms of speeding up that first transition but certainly not a necessary product another interesting question is what products were really big in the past that no longer are you know either fad or you know you know remember when there was those bloody wristbands that were on war for a while with the magnets on it oh god yeah yeah i'm so glad i never bought one and i've got offered them for free and i was like this ain't science. No. Uh, but, but everyone got into them for a while. You know, like this, these little fad things that come through, come and go as well, isn't there? Uh, what no, would you like to be lost, John? Well, there's been a couple of comments here in, in terms of uh, TT bikes being banned. And I'm not saying I'd necessarily 100% agree with that, but I'd just like to see our sport not become this just massive bucket of money that's required to actually yeah. be competitive and um so yeah i would not be averse to having aero bars banned and and just leveling the playing field a little bit do you mean aero bars of, or do you mean tt bikes well aero bars and, and front-facing handlebars um so you know and the reason for that is then you can have one bike and the difference between a crappy bike and a really good bike is still going to be, you know, pretty significant. But the difference between a crappy road bike or an average road bike and a TT bike is ginormous. And so I'd just like to see some, firstly, I'd like to see some things that are just going to break down that barrier to, to entry into our sport. And then secondly, um, more sustainability um, coming our way. And I don't know if I'm sort of probably getting a bit, bit off to- topic here in terms of banning things, but um, one piece of triathlon equipment I'd like to see be banned. Yeah, maybe maybe aerobars. I agree with Chris Apple there. Maybe swim, swim skins, not really that necessary. Uh, and then in terms of banning something, yeah, like cups or plastic cups, just trying to, at races and just, putting the onus back on the athlete a little bit more to be a bit more self-sufficient out there. So the question God, I'm getting old, Bevan. I'm getting old. Mate, you're getting old. Moaning about things. When I was young, um, the one question I have is, what's the minimal cost to start triathlon if you're going to do an Ironman? Yeah, good question. So were you looking at... You know, like, you know, and, and, you know, without being stupidly stupid about it, you know, like not, you know, like, you know, assuming you do need a TT bike, you you know, assuming you need a wetsuit, a TT bike, obviously in running shoes basic equipment yeah it kind of depends if you're going second hand or if you're going new but if you're going new you know you're going to be saying let's say 500 bucks for a uh for a wetsuit 
probably three grand for the lowest end sort of uh, TT bike. You could get really, even that cheap? Uh, you could probably get one for sort of three to four grand, but that would be bo- bottom bottom end. Uh, and then you're going to need a you know pair of running shoes, you know, and that's that's three hundred bucks. And you so, gear around it, so you, mm, so you got nothing. And then you've got an entry fee of, you know, probably these days about a thousand bucks New Zealand. Um, so you're already getting up to sort of towards five grand plus your, you know, your admission into everything. So I'd, I'd be saying, five yeah. To king, tough five to king grand really, isn't it? Be, be cl- getting closer to 10 grand than five grand when you factor in travel and all that sort of stuff. Um, of course, you could do it a shitload cheaper if you went secondhand with everything and, and camped and stuff like that. But if you wanted to do it in a semi-comfortable fashion, you know, it's a it's a really expensive sport. So I'd like to see us, even though it is taking a backward step and, and you know, we like to keep advancing, um, I'd like to see, a, you know, steps made to make it a, a little bit more accessible. Yeah, which I can't see happening, but I do agree. It, it, it's, it limits the, the field. You know, mm. triathlon's always been an expensive sport because it's a swim, bike, run. Um, but if we can make it more accessible, that's an important thing. Okay, John's weekly quiz. You've got a question for us here. Well, are we going to do this week's discussion topic first? Oh, sorry. This week's discussion topic is, what do you think about the tiered pricing model that many events are now using? Or do you prefer the traditional system of a standard and a late fee? So the tradition now, what's happening is you're kind of getting, depending on when you sign up, how much you pay. Mm. Okay. So what do you think about that? Okay. John's weekly quiz. What is it, Jombo? In what year did Challenge Roth change from being Ironman Europe to Challenge Roth? So originally for, for a long time, there you know, weren't many Ironman races around the world. There was Hawaii, there was Ironman New Zealand, there was Ironman Australia, and then there was Ironman Europe, uh, and there wasn't many others. There was occasionally... Did you say Japan? Uh, no, I didn't say Japan. Japan was definitely one, but there wasn't yeah. many. And then at some stage... I'm, um, I, Felix and his crew at um, his father, wasn't at it? Roth, yeah, said, "Had enough of this. We're going to set up our own brand. We think we can do it better, and we're going to call it Challenge Roth." What year was that? I've got a guess. I don't know how accurate I'm going to be, but speaking of which, John is going to be putting on a Camp Kekaha and wrote for 2023. Uh, you've got over a year to plan for it, so if you want to check it out, go to epiccamp.com slash Camp Kierkeha Challenge Road. There'll be a link to it on the front page. Yeah. Uh, what's what's the story? Pretty traditional Camp Kierkeha? Yeah, and I've only just got uh, confirmation it's all going ahead. So if you want to go over to Germany, Roth, it's on your, if it's on your bucket list, you've got over a year to plan. Uh, it is going to be awesome. Every year we have the athletes that go over the year and absolutely love it. It's a wicked race. Uh, plus we get to see a whole bunch of uh, the countryside. You get to see the course um, and it's just so much more fun going to an event as part of a team. So we'll probably have, you know, 20 to 25 athletes um, lining up and, and when you're on the start line and you've got others to watch out for, it's a much more enjoyable experience than just rocking up by yourself. So go to epiccamp.com and check it out if you're keen to come to Challenge Rope next year. The race is, I think, on June the 25th, so it's a little bit earlier than usual. I've got to say, um, one of the highlights of the camps for me is, is the camaraderie, the race. You know, the, this is one of the best camps you can ever do. But staying in Nuremberg, the history of that place, oh, my God, it is so cool. So yeah. check it out. EpicCamp.com to check out all the camps that John puts on. Okay, we're going to interview. What's happening, Jobbo? 
We are going to Jamie Hunt. You're going to have to do a bit of an intro, so no need to do too much here, but it's fantastic. It's an hour long, and you're going to hear about uh, his career as a triathlete, how he switched over into um, working with Orca and then setting up uh, Two Times You and then off into another venture now. Uh, very passionate guy and just a interesting insight to, to how a startup company grew so quickly and how things change when you get uh, big money behind you. They, they have expectations, don't they? Yeah. So listen up. Here he is right now. Righto, team. Um, when we do our Legends of Triathons podcast interviews, we uh, they come in many shapes and forms. Sometimes they're former athletes more often than not sometimes they're coaches sometimes they're administrators or industry leaders and today's guest uh, ticks a couple of those boxes so it's Jamie Hunt he's a Kiwi who's a very successful uh, pro triathlete he was also a world junior duathlon champion lots of podiums on the world cup circuit which is now the world sort of triathlon series uh, so it was the top level and probably you could argue came within eight seconds of making a New Zealand Olympic team when he finished eighth at the Sydney test event so finished eighth place and still didn't even make a team which is um, unimaginable but it did happen and uh, but probably most famous for being the co-founder of the sportswear company uh, Two Times You and uh, recently made a bit of a comeback over the last few years in the World of Triathlon with a 902 Ironman and uh, also starting up another venture that we're going to hear about later on so Jamie is ticking a lot of those boxes so welcome along to the show Jamie. Thanks, mate. Yeah, very, very nice to be nice to be on board uh, the, the show today, and uh, thanks for the many accolades you pointed out there. Yeah. Um, no, we look forward to the interview. What was your what was your you know your Kiwi fella? What was your your first exposure into into triathlon? Because I know you were in the game uh, well before I was, and I think I started in nineteen ninety one. So what what was your sort of first experiences? Um, the first one really was. Um, uh i went i went to boarding school um in my fourth form down on nelson college and i kind of like you know having started at a college in the second year didn't really have many friends and i kind of had um had a bit of a swimming and running background and i saw a, an advert for the uh les mills triathlon um must be like 1988 um, i suppose 87 um and um and i thought you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna do this you know so i um i went down there you know quite a chubby little kid and then i um went home like 12 weeks later when the race was on i'd lost like 15 kilograms and my parents were concerned they weren't feeding me and <laughs> and um you know and and it's like in my life i do everything at, at 100 miles an hour so i kind of threw myself in the triathlon scene did that and actually my goal was just to break three hours 30 and, and i i went two hours 30 um you know so um yeah so that was kind of my start and then you know around i think, I think later that year i went down to, to the um hamilton triathlon um we used to swim down the river there and um and then i you know met, met cameron brown and i think it was his first or second triathlon and and then and then a year later i met paul amy and we kind of got this little you know this little tribe going and and um no it was great and so that, that was my that was my early days and um and then obviously you know raced all through high school and you know with you know obviously with 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 Paul Amy and Cameron and Brendan Downey and uh um and you know a whole lot of guys down there so it was a really really great time to to be a junior to be a junior triathlete and I think one of the one of the most fondest memories was is that you know my, my father worked for the airline so I was able to um venture off to the to the states as a 
I think I was like a 17 year old and, and did my first race, um, over there. And, um, and I was probably the fourth or best, fourth or best, fifth best junior in New Zealand at the stage. You know, we obviously had very good juniors, um, went across there and, uh, raced, raced against the U S national champion. And I think I beat him by about 15 minutes. And then I came home and told Brownie and the boys, you know what guys, you know, we're actually really good. You know, you kind of just thought we were good in New Zealand, but we actually were probably with a, probably, probably the best ever breed of athlete to ever come out of a country at one time, you know? So, um, yeah, so that was um, the early years. So, and I know you mentioned the, the junior years there. I, I looked up the, the 1991 junior world champs and you finished in 13th place, which, you know, you'd yep. think is, is pretty respectable. I looked, I, I did a quick count through that list and of the top 30 or so juniors in that race, I, I counted 17 names in there that I know had professional careers. You had guys like Lothar Leader finishing in 32nd place, Alexandra Manzan 31st. You had guys like Oscar Galindi in there at uh, 18th, yeah. uh, Thomas Hellregal at 7th, Ralph Eggert at 6th, Ben Brighton 3rd. Yeah. So it was um, it was a pretty, st- <laughs> you know, a lot of athletes at that time seemed to kick on and, and go pro compared to these days. I, I didn't do any analysis of these days, but I'd say it'd be a small handful that would go on to have pro careers. So it must have been a pretty yeah. cool time to be part of the sport. No, it was. And I, I think the reason why we're probably with the first generation of uh triathletes that kind of started when we were young i mm. think you know most of the, the guys before us kind of started more like um, young adults mm. we, we were like one of the first you know the first generation where we started triathlons as 13 14 year olds and um that's probably a big reason and obviously even things like learning how to swim you know you're trying to learn how to swim as a 20 year old is pretty hard but you know, we learned how to swim. We were twelve and thirteen, which helped. So I think we just were the first generation that came through, and and um, you know, it's so it, it really it really was a golden era, and it, it was really, you know, I those were just really really fun years. You know, where where you just raced for national teams and and um, you went to cool places. It just it was like a real adventure. It really was. So I know, um, and I don't know when you made the sort of more the switch over to duathlon, but um, you did have a period where you really focused on your duathlon for a number of years. I mean, these days people would be kind of staggered to think anybody would do a duathlon, you know, almost other than doing it as a, as a training session. What was the sort of rationale there? And, and how long did you sort of um, focus more on the, the duathlon um, discipline? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in those days, it was actually a really big sport. I mean, obviously um, events like, Desert Princess um, Duathlon, and obviously we had the, the Power Power Man and Zofingen, and it was I think the big reason why is in Europe there wasn't really um, many spots to swim. So particularly in Europe was a really really big um, a really really big um, sport back in those days. And so I think the I mean I um, I think I went to um, I went to in 1992. I went I think I went to Triathlon World as a junior. Um, and I think I got top. I think I, think I, think I, think I, think I collapsed in Orlando or something. And then I went to the World Champs in USA, won won those, and thought, oh well, that's pretty cool, you know. And and then I, the following year, I went back and um, won the Junior Worlds in '92. And I think you know the names in that field. I mean, Norman Stadler got third. Um, mm-hmm. Second was a guy Oliver Oliver Husmith, who actually I think went on to win the World Junior Triathlon Champs that year. So it was it was a pretty pretty top cast and after that event i got a whole lot of invites 
particularly in Europe, you know, to come and race and, and I've got a parent's money and, and there's a whole lot of quite well-paying duathlons um, in those days. And so I probably persevered doing duathlons for the next four or five years. And I, I remember one time I was in Japan, I was um, rooming with Kenny Souza, who was a big duathlete back in those <laughs> days. Um, and, and he goes to me, you know, can you swim? And I said, yeah, I actually came from a swimming background. And he goes, what the heck are you doing triathlons for? And I, and, and so I kind of put a bit of thought into it. And, but, you know, I was married at the stage. And I said to my wife, you know what? I'm making no money, money doing duathlons. I, might, I may as well um, give triathlons another go. And around the same time, I was talking to Brendan Downey, who became my coach. And, and so Brendan goes, you know, let, you know, let me coach you and, and let, let's, give it a, let's give it a good crack. And so I actually, um, my first triathlon back, it was 1996, and I went to Hong Kong. And I can remember. I was there, yeah. Yeah, you, you were definitely there. It was my first ever triathlon after being a duathlon. And basically, I think the, the race flew in everyone to race and I paid my own way um, because I hadn't done a triathlon in so many years and I actually won that race yeah um um and you know I bet I think Brownie got third and Jason Meadows got second and Miss Scott was there yeah and then and then I um and then I went and and did a half Ironman in in Fiji and I got second behind Ken Glar um he was a he was a legend in those days um and then I got selected to race in the world long course champs um in 96 and I actually got invited to come to, to go to the Flagstaff camp with the New mm. Zealand team, which was really cool. So I went there, trained with the New Zealand team, went to, um, it was um, Muncie, Indiana, um, and it was a stellar field. I mean, it, it was, nowadays, I think, um, there's so many Ironmans on and so many other long course triathlons on. Back in those days, the long course world was a serious event. So I, I ended up getting fourth, um, five seconds behind Spencer Smith, um Luke Van Leer who won Hawaii a few weeks later got second and Greg Welsh got first and I think I was only like a minute and a half behind Greg so I was you know I was right there with them um and then and then I went home and then I got an invite to race in the uh ITU Auckland race which was about six weeks later and I'd never ever done it obviously an ITU race before and and um and so I got an invite and and um I was training really really well and actually a funny story with that one I um a lot of, but they actually had TA, TAB beating for that race. And um, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> and, a lot, and a lot of guys knew that, I, I mean, I'd been going to, to the Loaded Hog 5K. I think I ran a 14.06 there and everyone knew I was in really good shape and I was paying $40 for the win um, <laughs> because I'd never done an ITU race before, you know. And and um, and I remember uh, Jeff Preble was a bit of a guy back and I, I remember he put, put $1,000 on me. And um <laughs> And um and and it came down to I was actually leading the race until like a kind of half to go um, when Miles Stewart caught me, and um, so I finished second in my first World Cup race. Hamish Carter got third, and um and that just really propelled me into doing ITUs. And I, I happened to get some good results later on that year again, and picked up a New Balance uh, team. And I, was, I was married at the stage, but to have my first kid, and um and I was on a salary from a Japanese company, doing really well. So I just spent the next. Next three or four years, you know, I had a world world ranking of number three in 1997. Um, I think behind Macker and I think Miles, um, and I had Hamish in that as well. So I had a good year 97 and 98. I was like sixth or seventh in the world, and yeah. And then obviously, you know, um, you know, as as you as you said, um, you know, Olympic year, I um, you know got eighth in the first trial race, and then in the uh, in the world champs two weeks later, which was the second trial. Um, I was in the, in the, um, 
main pack and then I actually crashed on, on the last corner, uh, lost 45 seconds. So I came off the bike in 46th place and then I ran all the way through to 11th place with the fastest run of the day, finished five seconds behind Hamish, um, even though I'd lost, even though I had that crash. Um, so I actually thought I would make the team. I, I completely thought with a, an eighth and 11th and a fin in the two trials, I was the only one who, who, who got top 15, which was what was the criteria that I'd make the team. And in the end, it came down that I lost two votes to one and missed out on the games team, which obviously was uh, devastating. And I, I think I still think today I was unjustified. And, and um, even the selectors have said to me, they made a mistake, but Hey, that was life. And I, but you know what? Um, life hands out some shitty deals sometimes, but this in particular was actually a really good thing because, because I'm missing out on the Olympic games team. I um, decided to retire. Um, mm. I was 29 years old. I'd always promised my wife, unless I was making really good money, um, I would stop at 29 um, and go and find a real career. So mm. 29 years old, I pulled up pulled up stumps, um, went to work at Orca. Uh, um, before, at before we go on to your business okay. career, I, I, I want <laughs> yeah. to talk a bit more of this, this yeah. try stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned there sort of 96 was a, was a bit of a turning point, and, and I was on that camp and, and flag stuff, and I remember we actually both shaved our heads, and thankfully our, <laughs> our, our, thankfully our hair grew back. Um, <laughs> uh, when you did that long course race back then, was, was there any temptation after that initial success um, to actually do, any, do some long course racing when you finished it fourth at the World Champs? You know what? Not, not, not really, to be honest. Like, I never... You know what? I don't. I don't think I ever really loved training, and I um, used to watch some of my Ironman mates and all the hours they did training, and I was like, you know what? I don't really want to train for that many hours every day. Um, and I and I and I also I also felt like my run leg, um, which was my obviously it was obviously my strength, and um, um, I thought you know my run leg in an ITU race as long as I could get my swimming right. I knew I could have a really good career. Um, mm. And when, when you go up to Ironman, you definitely do lose a bit of, you lose a bit of that speed. And so I always thought maybe one day I'd go into Ironman later in my career. But I think after I got second in ITU Auckland and the Olympic Games was on the horizon, hey, every, everybody's dream is to go to the Olympic Games. And so I was 100% focused. I dedicated three years of my life, you know, to making, to making that team. So to answer your question, no, not really, but I actually wish now that I had, because, you know, even having done Ironmans just in the last, you know, 10 years, you know, being an old fella, um, <laughs> I, I'm actually, I'm pretty, pretty, I do pretty well in them. So, um, you know, I would have loved to, to give, at least give one a good crack, you know. And was there anything particular you did to, to sort of get your swim to a level where you were, you know, you, you seem to generally make the main pack and, um, it seemed like your pool swimming was not quite as good as your actual race swimming. So was there anything in particular you, you did to, to get your swimming up to a better standard? Yeah, I mean, yeah, good point. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't a good pool swimmer. I, um, I definitely was better open water swimming. Um, you know what? I, you know, I, went, I went to Australia, to the Gold Coast, spent two years swimming with uh, Grant Hackett's squad with uh, Dennis Cottrell and... And there was a, you know, and and I improved a little bit. But to be honest with you, I probably wasn't swimming. I mean, even I spent a year with Rick Wells and we had like a little pro tri squad that would swim at nine. And we were only doing our sessions, but they were really good specific sessions. And I wasn't really swimming any better 
you know, swimming with uh, Grant Hackett's squad doing six, seven K sessions than I was with Rick doing three K sessions. So, you know, I, I just never, yeah, I swam well. Like I'd make, I'd make the main pack the vast majority of the time, even a few times actually made the front pack um, on some courses um, because I was always a high, a high seed. We always got to go to the start line and pick, pick a good spot. So you could often could start next to some good swimmers and, and jump on their feet and kind of hang on. Um, but like, I think my swimming definitely was my nemesis in my career. And if I was just swimming a little bit better, I would have made a lot more front packs. And then I definitely would have won, I think, quite a few World Cups. Um, you know, I had a whole bunch of podiums, but, you know, I, I got within winning, winning one of Shigaki one year by 10 metres until Greg Welsh caught me on the line. <laughs> um, you know, so I, um, you know, I, um, I, swimming was definitely my nemesis. And, but you know what? I just didn't, I just did not enjoy swimming. I, <laughs> I just love, I, I just love to run. I mean, on, even to this day, you know, I, I actually turned 50 and I turned 50 next week. Um, and even to this day, running is still the thing that I just love to do. Um, mm. It's still the thing that, you know, that I just thoroughly enjoy more than anything else. And, and swimming just really wasn't a love of mine. I think if you want to do really well in something, you've got to be passionate about it. And, you know, and, and so I think um, um, that was it. And, and I, I also learned over the years too, that I did not swim well in cold water uh, mm. for some reason. And I always, I always had good swims in, in warm, warm water swims like Cancun. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it definitely helped me pick races later in my career, but swimming, swimming was always, I think swimming's a thing you're often born with more than anything else in some ways. Mm. You know, so. so um you mentioned a few names there in terms of some of the influences you know brendan downey um was coaching at some stage i'm pretty sure jack ralston had a bit of involvement with yeah. you were there were there any who were the, some of the the key influences on your sort of tri career yeah definitely jack ralston i mean jack obviously you know we i mean i actually lived in forest hill in auckland and just down the road from where jack lived and um so every afternoon we used to go up me and him and a bunch of other young kids mostly runners used to go up to the golf course in Pupuki and run there every, every, every afternoon. And, and obviously, you know, Hamish came along and then Cameron came along and we had a fantastic little squad um, with Jack. And, and obviously um, Jack had a, had a good job. And I think over time we were, we all left because he had a career outside being a coach. And, um, but Jack was a great coach, mentor, like a second father to me in so many ways, you know, a fantastic man. Um, and, and, and then when I came back, um, when I came back, to do trials, you Brendan and I. I have to say, I think Brendan was my was my best coach I ever had. I think mm-hmm. Brendan, um, he just took such good care of me, scientific, pushed me hard, told me to slow down. And I think he was probably one of the lost thing lost people of New Zealand triathlon mm-hmm. was Brendan's ability to coach. And I, you know, I experienced it firsthand. The things we would do back then, like you know, one time he, he used to have me. Um, have a, a a swim watch and we used to use it as a as a um, stride measure for running back in the days before you had gps and we would <laughs> and we would do things like um do 1k reps measure my stride measure my heart rate um measure my speed and you'll be able to work out whether i needed to get to do more strength or more speed work mm-hmm. like it, just things like that you know you know but back in the 90s was you know was you know revolutionary you know and and um, so he, he was a great coach, um, you know, and, you know, got a lot of time for Brendan. And then obviously, and then I went to Australia and I was trained, I trained on my own for a while. And then after a while, I got sick of it. So I, I joined Bill Daverin's squad and Bill was, was, was the Australian coach, trained with guys like Craig Walton, 
as an example. Um, so got became good friends with Craig. Um, and um, yeah, and then and then and then yeah, so really, really those two, I mean, really those three people were my main coaches in my career. Um, you know, and you know, and all became, you know, li- lifelong friends. Are there any particular events that you really loved going to every year? Um I mean, I, I always seem to, to race well um, at Ishigaki. I mean, yeah. I mean, I had a few. I had a few podiums there. It was always the first race of the year, and for some reason, I always got there in, in great shape. And um, you know, and I mean, it, it, I mean, they were it, so that was definitely a um, a great race, and that, that, I, that I really enjoyed every year. I also really enjoyed Cancun every year. Um, it was hot. It was the last race of the year. You kind of went, then you kind of celebrated afterwards. Um, but you. Um, Sorry, I stood the door. Um, but you, you know, but other than that, you know what? Um, I I try to I try to not race the same race a lot. I tried to, you know, kind of go all over the world and and experience different cultures and races. And but I mean, even saying that, I mean, I used to race based a lot in Japan and I used to love racing in Japan a lot because the races were so well put on. Um, you can normally win them relatively easily. And you never and you never had to hurt too hard. Um, yeah. but look, Japan based in the US was great. But like I, you know, I um, you know, I think I enjoyed it if I raced well. Um, always. Um, I yeah. think, you know, there was nothing like line and beat after a good race. One relieved that it was over. But if if you just did well, you just I just I used to line bet all night, just so satisfied you know um of how it went but yeah so yeah look i mean i you know i i loved and i had it racing um but you know it's um yeah it always hurt a lot you know you, you sort yeah. of started off before about um you know moving into your um you know the world of corporate world and um, i know you started off at orca which was previously known as uh, performance wetsuits in its very yeah. early days um but scott Un- scott unsworth was uh, was there as i know was a mate of yours um how did that sort of come about you know moving pretty much directly from that you know um huge letdown of not making the olympic team to to then getting into the the corporate world well, I, I mean, um, I mean, yeah, it's exactly. I mean, Scott was a great friend of mine, and he was passing through the Gold Coast where I was living, where I was kind of like thinking about whether I should retire or not. And he came through, and we got talking one day, and I kind of ha- I helped him on some contracts for um for him with some distribution contracts, um, um, and then he goes to me, "Why don't you come and work for me?" And I'm like, "Oh, yeah." Yeah, he goes. Yeah, I I can't afford to pay you very much. I pay you minimum wage. And I'm like, oh yeah. And so I, I went there, and I mean, I I'm actually um an economist by trade. So I I started off in the finance team, and I lasted about six weeks in the finance team. <laughs> and um and um the the production manager got up and got up and left one day. Um, had, you know, had an argument with Scott, and I said, look, Scott, I know nothing about production. I know nothing about how to make fabrics or or do that kind of stuff but i'm passionate i'm a hard worker and i love triathlon and i know exactly what the triathlons triathletes want to wear give me a shot at this role and um he said why not so the next day i was, I was on, on an airplane up to italy i spent the next two months developing a collection um up, up in italy with um a, a few factories up there um you know learn all about fabrics how they work you know, and, and really just really fell in love. I mean, since that day, my passion has been um, 
textile engineering. I love to develop new fabrics, new yarns, new fibers. That's definitely what I love to do. Um, and because of that, I've been able to create some great businesses. So Clover Fabrics created a, a collection for Orca. I think it sold two and a half or three times more than any other collection had before. So I kind of was onto a good thing. Um, so then I spent the next three and a half years there. And um, I think the probably the highlight of being at Orca was in 2004, we were awarded the Olympic Games uniform uh, for New Zealand. And th that wasn't just for triathlon. That was the whole uniform for all sports, opening, closing ceremonies, track seats, everything. And um, it almost drove me into the grave. I basically spent six months in China in the factories, you know, developing um, women's garments for gymnasts right up to um, um, Beatrice Fowl Marina, it was like a 10XL, you know, and, um, you know, it was, it was and in developing uniforms for sports like sailing. It was a lot of work, um, but I learned a lot during that time. So we, we did that. And then, uh, yeah. And then, and then the, the following year was when we started, I started two times a year. So in terms of Scott Unsworth and, um, and Orca, I was obviously in the game then. Were they pretty much the biggest wetsuit um, manufacturer in the world at that time? And I know there was Ironman wetsuits, which is now Blue 70, but were they pretty much the, you know, the industry leader? Yeah, they pretty much were. I think, I think uh, Quintana Roo from yeah. the USA definitely dominated, I think, the US market. But I think definitely in the in the Australasian, Asian, even the UK markets, I think I was I think between um, Ironman and Orca there was quite a big rivalry. But mm. I think definitely in the US market, um, Quintana Roo probably was the leader. But I think I think by the time I left, by the time I left, I think Orca would have been the biggest wetsuit brand probably in almost all countries of the world. Um, so it definitely. Um, you know, by 2005, it, it would have been, you know, and also in apparel too. Not not many brands have managed to do well in wetsuits and apparel. And I think by 2005, both wetsuits and apparel, they were both the leaders um, in both those segments, you know, so. And what happened to Scott Unsworth? Because I know Orca, I think, has been bought by Orbea. It may have moved on since then, but is Scott Unsworth still uh, batting around the traps in, in the sort of triathlon world? Um, no, no, no. Honestly, with you, I've, I've, I think I've spoken to him once since I left right. Orca in 2005. Yeah. He wasn't happy. He wasn't happy that I left. Yeah. Um, but I, um, but no, he, he, I, I believe he licensed the brand to obey. I, he may even still yeah. own it. Um, but obviously doesn't really get involved too much in, anymore in the triathlon. But I think he, um, he's got a charter boat business. Um, yeah. I think, thing also done very well, um, with, um, buying and selling buildings and doing them up and, yeah, I mean, I think he's done actually actually done very well for himself. Um, I, yeah. I believe he's got he's married with uh, two daughters, I believe. Um, yeah, so still around, still kicking around, um, but um, you know, not not at all involved um, in the scene um, at all anymore in the triathlon yeah. world. So, yeah. so you moved on from from Walker, and then you went over to to, to establish two times you. Um, I guess just just tell about tell us about that process, about how coming up with the name, about your business partners, and, and how that all sort of panned out. Yeah, I mean the, the way it happened was that um, um, a man from Australia called Clyde Davenport. Um, he was very well known in Australia, you know, like the underwear king. You had Calvin Klein brand over there. Um, you know, made a, had quite a few licensed properties where basically you buy the name of a brand and you can make a parallel and you pay like a royalty back to it. And and by this stage, um, both Scott and I were 
were over apparel. Um, it's a lot of work apparel. It's a lot of work, particularly doing it from New Zealand and having to fly to Portugal and Italy every every few months. So we basically, Scott decided he wanted to license the orca clothing part out. So he engaged he engaged Clyde, and then and then the deal was is that myself and um, my business partner in the future, Aiden Aiden Clark, would go to Melbourne, work for Clyde, uh, work with Clyde, big big part owners, and build the Orca brand through the world in clothing. La- last minute, Scott pulled out, didn't want to do it, uh, and then Clyde goes to Aiden and myself, "Hey guys, why don't we just start our own brand?" And we we're like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" Um, so moved to Australia, um, and I think the main thing with Two Times You, I said from the start with with Clyde, I said, look, I don't just want to start a Me Too brand. I I want to create fabrics which are just like next level. I want to be given a budget where I can innovate and create, um, and just create world leading fabrics. And you know, and 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 he he gave me that that he gave me that that um the allowance to go and do that um and even and with the name basically we engaged a company to try and buy .com to try and find a name is so hard and <sighs> we engaged this company um and explained that we wanted to make clothing that was going to make athletes perform better and they came up with, with the brand two times you and at the start i actually hated it <laughs> i just thought it was a bit but corny um but then over time it just really caught on you know and 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 it, it was a good name um in the end and i think you know, it was you know it was all based around multiplying your performance you know um and that so that was definitely the more the brand essence was about making you go faster stronger and that was that was our marketing um yeah so so it was it was myself clyde davenport aiden clark i obviously ran the product team um you know developed fabrics products managed production managed the whole supply chain but still was quite heavily involved in the sales with Aiden. Um, I think one of our successes really was the fact that we would go to the stores and we would educate them on what fabrics actually are, you know, how they're made, the science behind it. Um, and in those days, no one was really talking tech. They were just really saying things like this garment wicks moisture. We would go mm-hmm. into the stores and explain how it wicks moisture, why it wicks moisture better, about the power, about you know, all those kind of things. And we definitely became the, the education leaders in the world. And, you know, and I think, you know, um, I think, you know, we, we definitely triathlon. We never wanted to be a triathlon brand. And for the first three or four years, we kind of fell into triathlon. And I think by year two, we, we became the world's biggest triathlon brand. I think by year three, we were two or three times bigger than the, than the next biggest one. And then, and then, and then um, compression came along Um and um and you know skins started it we kind of jumped on the back of it we developed a much better product um which to today i still believe it was um and kind of you know waved the coat coattails of of compression over the next six seven eight years and you know we had it on every nba basketball team all but three nfl teams lebron james wrought non-stop you know it grew all through the world and um and then obviously yeah so that was you know, that was um, the early two times you years. It was just this brand, which was three owners who were passionate about what we did. We had no real, we had a persona of let's not overthink things. We never had a business plan. We never really were like, if something comes along, it's a good idea, we'll jump and do it. We didn't really, you know, have strict budgets. We just built the brand as we thought was best at a time, you know, and we just 
grew the brand very quickly and very, very profitably. I think I don't know of any other brand that had profits like we had, you know, mm. and yeah, you know, so it was a very successful company. But in, in terms of that growth, um, maybe focusing more on the, the triathlon side of it, were, were pros a very big part of that in terms of, um, I guess, your marketing push? You mentioned you know, NBA and, and NFL and things like that. But in the triathlon space, how, how important were the pros to you in terms of building your brand? I don't, I don't think they played a huge part. Um, you know, we probably sponsored athletes because it, we thought it was our responsibility. Um, because they were help having build the sport too. But we, you know, um, our biggest growth in triathlon actually actually came out of the American market. And there was no real heroes in the American market. And we just grew it out of just making a really great product. And I think, I think a big part of it is just creating a well-built product that looks really good, that's that's price pointed well. And the stores were so, so loved what we did as a company that they would always pushed the, the consumers towards the brand. However, in saying that, I will tell you one story. We, and maybe maybe I don't understand how important that it was, but we actually convinced the Australian triathlon team to wear, uh, to wear two times you before we'd even launched. So about a month before we launched, we made this, the kit for the Australian triathlon team, the world champs in Gamagori. And um, the woman got gold and silver, the men got gold and bronze. Mm. And we were a brand that no one ever knew about. Um, so when we did launch into triathlon, we already had the, the two world triathlon champions wearing our gear. So that definitely helped a lot, probably. Mm. Um, but looks, but 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 looks definitely as we got older, we, you know, as we grew and built, we definitely always wanted to have the best. So you know, we you know for quite a long time we had Jan Fadino, um, Daniela Reef. We had her at, at her peak. Um, you know, we definitely tried to get the very best. Um, and yeah, you know, and obviously we also had a big had a big play at sponsoring you know New Zealand triathlon teams, Australian triathlon teams, the the Great Britain triathlon team. Um, we also found that sponsoring those national teams also played a really important part as well. But you know, I think ultimately in triathlon, I don't. Um, I'm sure the pros hate me saying this, but I was a pro too. I think ultimately just making a really really good product is the most important part of building a really strong brand. Um, you know, and and that's exactly what we did. And obviously, the business is still going. You're not part of it now. But how how big did it um, did it get at its peak? Uh, we we got up to about 100 million in sales, um, but we got up to close to I think 25 to 30 million in profit, which was you know very profitable business. So mm. that was basically um, you know I, I think profitability even under Arm at a billion dollars was making less than we were making at 100 million. So. You know, we had a really profitable business and that obviously attracted the likes um, of LVMH um, to come along. And obviously they they bought into us um, the first round about 2012 um, because we were a very profitable business. We were growing quickly, um, you know, and we were definitely, you know, we're in about a thousand stores in the US. Um, we were definitely making a lot of noise um, in the high tech sports space. How do, I don't know if... Um... How did you kind of react when the, the space became more competitive? Because, you know, um, in the early years, you know, there was probably X number of triathlon players. And again, I'm talking in the triathlon market here, but then more and more came in. And that, these days it's bloody, it's extremely congested. Yeah. But you get players like, say, a Roka, for example, and that might have been after you'd left. But, you know, they come in and are throwing huge money um, at just sponsoring 
pretty much blanket sponsoring most of the, the pro yeah. athletes. So how do you kind of deal with that or do you just kind of focus on your own task and, and having that best product? How, how did you deal with players that come in like that? You know, we, we you know, at, at two times you, we always had a very successful triathlon business, even with new competitors coming in. You know, I, I think with, with new guys coming in, they have to have a better product than what you have to really take market share off you. It's, it's, like, it's like the space that I'm in now. To, to start a new brand's tough. You've got to have a unique, different story. And I think we kind of had the distribution. We had really good product. We definitely lost some market share as we kind of spent more time in, in the compression space. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely brands like Roka definitely came on the scene before I left. But I can tell you now, I don't know if any triathlon brands ever made money except us. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, I know Roka have lost a lot of money over the years. Um, mm. they, they do very well now with glass sunglasses. Um, know, know the guys there well, um, but the triathlon business cost them a lot of money. Um, and I really don't know any, any maybe exterior wetsuits who sold direct in the US market did okay, but other than two times you, the, the triathlon market's extremely competitive. When we, we first started at Orca and the days of two times you at the start, um, neoprene was quite well priced. It was quite good margins. By the time I left two times you, the wheat was our lowest margin business. Hmm. So many competitors out there doing it, as you say. Um, but you know what? And that's exactly the reason why today I don't envision starting a triathlon brand. It's just way too competitive. It's um, it's not that hard to make a triathlon wetsuit. There's probably four or five guys in the world you can go and see factories and tell them exactly what you want to make. Um, all the neoprene's from Yamamoto in Japan. You use their, you use their neoprene, and and it's not hard. Apparel companies are much harder to start than than wetsuit companies in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a crowded marketplace. And but you know what, we you know we had a good business in triathlon. Probably lost it a bit towards the end. But by that stage, by the time I left two times, you it's probably only five percent of our sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really wasn't a focus for us at all. And, and when when the time did come to leave, was it a bit like your triathlon career? It was just like, okay, it's the right time to leave now and go and do something else. How did that sort of come about? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the problem we had was, you know, when we first took our first investment um, with um, LVMH, one of the criteria was, in some ways, look, you know, the the they said to the to the three founders, you guys have done a fantastic job. Let us bring in some real market experts in what you're doing, and you guys can kind of take a bit of a backseat. Um, and we and you know I was naive in those days a little bit. I was like, oh, surely these guys will do a better job than us. <laughs> so we kind of kind of we kind of sat back a little bit and just basically saw our revenue erode very our profit erode very quickly. Um, I kind of lost. I kind of was disempowered with the product team. And so over, over the last, probably the last five years at Two Times You, I was still there, but I, I was never checked out, but I didn't have the same kind of autonomy that I had in the early days. It was kind of handed across to a couple of CEOs who both severely underperformed. Mm. Um, it's probably probably my biggest regret as a company. I'm sure my two other founders would have said the same thing, that we didn't keep the power of Two Times You in our, in our, own, in our own hands. Um, but yeah, so, so really, and then about a year, a year before I left, um, I got a, I, I did a few collabs with Yeezy and Kanye West 
And then about a year um, before I left, Kanye um, approached me and said, you know, can you come and run Yeezy for me? And so I spent quite a bit of time in my last year. It wasn't a conflict, obviously. It was, you know, it was more shoes and more fashion apparel. Um, and so I got a little bit of taste of the world outside two times you. Um, I ultimately, you know, turned Kanye down in the end um, for many reasons that most of the world knows about the way that he is. Um, but, you know, also a lovely guy too in many ways. But but I think that last year, being, being in LA with Kanye and then and then kind of really losing control of the business, the business started to not make any money. And then LVMH said, well, why don't we just buy you, the founders out? And, we're, and I was like, yep, I'm ready to go. Also, mm-hmm. also um, the business was based in Melbourne. I'd spent, um, my family had moved home five years before I fully sold out. So I'd spent five years going to Melbourne on a Monday morning, coming home on a Thursday night, plus every third week being in Asia or, or Europe or the US. So I was so burnt out, you know. Um, so it was, I was ready to have a, have a bit of a break. And, you know, and, and part of the two times you exit was I had to spend two years outside the industry. And so I was kind of ready to have a bit of a break and hence my 902 Ironman. You know, yeah, so. it made you come back to Ironman. And, and it was that sort of, was it more trying to tick that Ironman box? I think I might have seen you at the Kona 70.3 one year as well. So, I mean, yeah. how much, um, what was the comeback like, you know, and, and sort of venturing into the, the age group world, obviously um, at the pointy end of the age group world. But, um, you know, what was, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I, I had I had actually, actually, I think 2010, I was about 30 kilograms overweight. Um, you know, actually had some quite bad depression because I was just completely out of shape, you know, burnt out, working really hard. So that 2010, I decided I was going to start doing triathlons again. So I, I actually did Melbourne Ironman 2012 um, as a 40-year-old, and I went 8.58. Um, nice. So my first time, my first time, and I broke nine hours. So I was like, I was yeah. and then I went and did Hawaii that year. Just suffered in the heat, um, and but I all I always had a goal after Hawaii. I always want to always want to go back. I was I want to go back one day and win Hawaii. You know, that was always my goal. So then then I basically spent the next three or four years just doing the old triathlon here and there. Um, I think I did long course. Actually, I got, I got uh, long course worlds. Actually, I got um, I got fourth overall and. Um, finished a minute behind uh, your uh, Bevan McKinnon in the uh, oh, right. long course yeah. worlds in China. Um, <laughs> we had a good yeah. battle royale. We had a very good battle royale that day. Yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. So, I, so I had my hand in it, but really, when I left two times, you, um, I think it was six months later. I'd never done New Zealand Ironman, and basically spent the next six months training with Cameron, training with Cameron most days. Um, so, you know, put a whole lot of effort into, in, into that Ironman. So what's, what's the satisfaction like for a pro when you know, you're, you know, you're never going to be as fast as what you were and you're not probably going to be, you might be winning your age group, but you're not necessarily going to be winning an, an event overall or anything. What's, where, where do you get the satisfaction out of that? I, I think triathlon is one of the, one of the great sports that age group level is, um, it's still a, a real competitive um, um, division. I mean, I think there's no other sport like triathlon that I know that has the age group um, status that it has. And obviously it's nothing like being a professional and racing professionally, but you know what? I got 
just as much said, much as much satisfaction, you know, getting second age grouper overall, you know, um, you know, in 2019 New Zealand than I did probably getting second in a professional race. Um, mm. Probably even more more excited about it. And that's one thing I love about triathlon. I'm obviously I'm turning I'm turning 50 um, this year, and I really you know I really wanted to go and try and break nine hours this year, but work's just so busy that I'm not going to be able to. But you know you know, you can still, you can still, um, compete as an age grouper. Um, you can still to, to go and win Hawaii one year would be amazing. I could do that up until I'm 70 or 80. So mm. it, it just never stops. So I think, I think we're really lucky as triathletes that the age group, um, game is still a really competitive, you know, game. And I thoroughly enjoy being an age grouper. I really do. Mm. Is there any, you mentioned Hawaii there, is there any particular, um, events you want to tick off or, or do extremely well at um you know before you before you can't do it any longer yeah i mean definitely roth i think roth's the one race and i was actually entered to do roth um when COVID hit um mm. so um so i obviously had to so i, I couldn't do that and I, and I actually really wanted to do roth this year and particularly with, with cameron coming to do it as well Uh, We've spoken about it a lot over the last few years, you know, as, as 50 year olds to go and do Roth and, (laughs) you know, he'll try and break eight and I'll I'll try and go and break nine, you know, Um, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, but you know what, I, I I still believe that I can go back to Roth um, hopefully next year and and still try and break nine hours. It's a fast course, you know, Um, you know, I think, I think if, you know, um, much faster than New Zealand and with a whole lot of guys, you can kind of sit behind a bit more than you can in New Zealand. Um, (laughs) But um. But um, but you know what I um, you know I think think Ross went on, and I definitely want to go back and win Hawaii one year. And that's yeah. definitely, I definitely wanted it to do it uh, this year. Um, but I you know maybe next year. But even when I turn fifty five, um, you know obviously once I get my new brand established enough, um, that I can kind of give it a bit more time. And trying to train for a nine man living in London, it is not good. Um, yeah. you know, training. Yeah. Training in London is really, really tough, really yeah. tough. Um, you know, um, I did a half last year training through London and actually did quite well at it, but it was, it was, a, it was really hard work to try and train, you know, um, here for that. So you, you mentioned a couple of the challenges there, you know, around depression and, and obviously you also said, um, you know, when you got really stuck into the corporate world, you, you were overweight. So that's, that's sort of two pretty challenging areas of life is, is obviously keeping your weight where you want it to be and, and obviously dealing with depression that people that haven't experienced that probably really can't appreciate. So maybe yeah. just on the, the weight side of things, what's it like for a, for a pro athlete who's been, you know, a lean, mean, bloody fighting machine for, for years to then experience that sort of being probably, you know, a bit unhealthy and, and overweight by the sound of it. Yeah, it was, it was tough. I mean, you know what I am, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the big things with being a pro triathlete, I mean, I, I look back now and people, uh, I once read an article when someone wrote how, how I quit far too early. I could have done some really big things and, but I never, I never, never re- regretted, you know, quitting triathlons, uh, what I did. So, so in saying that, when I went out into the world, um, you know, triathlon was dead to me. I did nothing. And obviously when you go from training 12, you know, oh, sorry, like 24, 30 hours a week and to do, to doing next to nothing, weight does come on pretty quickly. And, but you know what, I've never, I've never really measured myself again as a as a as as what i did as a pro because as you get older 
you know, um, as you, you know what, I, I took so much satisfaction that you know, even back in 2012 when I did went sub nine hours, I think, you know, the fact I did that and also was running a really successful company, that was far more satisfying to me than probably breaking eight hours if I was still a professional, you know. So, mm. you know, I, I know now that I've got a corporate life. Um, I can't train the way that I, that I want to train. And I really put my professional career behind me, you know. I think the most depressing part is, is that when I go and do intervals now, I, I try and do four-minute K-pace and I used to do mm. sub-three-minute K-pace on my intervals. So that, <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit depressing because a minute's a long time, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, but you know what? I'm I'm old. I mean, I I I look at Cameron as an example, and he's just a freak of nature. Yeah. What he does and how he keeps going so fast and so well. And I, but as a almost fifty year old, my knees just won't put up. Look, okay, I just can't do what I used to be able to do. You know, even yeah. training wise. You know, and but look, look, being overweight was hard. The hard part was losing the weight, and um, mm-hmm. and I definitely go up and down, and that's why once a year I try and do a triathlon once a year. And that's kind of like my, my time where I put aside two or three months to try and get fit, you know, get back down to like high 70 kgs, you know, um, you know, and, um, and, you know, and get there. So that's the reason why I probably train probably it's just to try and stay, try and not get, get too overweight, you know? So, mm. but look, it's, um it's just part of life. And, you know, I, I, as an athlete, I never drank and I drink far too much now. It's probably my, my biggest hindrance is my alcohol consumption. Um, <laughs> nice. um, but, you know, so, yeah. And, and, and you started a new venture now, um, Prezio. Uh, why, why would you go and do that when you've you obviously had, you know, an incredibly successful time at, at two times you and, and, and probably could, I imagine, retire quite comfortably and now you've gone, gone off and, and flogging yourself again? You know, what, what's the motivation to, to do, it, do it all over again when and you, you know what, what probably lies ahead with, with a new startup yeah. business? Yeah. You know what, I, that question I ask myself every single day. <laughs> yeah. no, I, um, no, you know what, I... I um, I had, you know, I think think during COVID, the, you know, the start of COVID, I was I was already planning to start this brand, but maybe not go quite as hard as what I did. Um, but you know, I get bored really easy, um, and and when I put myself into anything, I do it at a thousand miles an hour. Um, so so I, I I mean I and my um, my daughter um, her her fiance um, Andy Nicholson he. Uh, he smart kid and he kind of keep putting some pressure on me you know why don't we start a new brand why don't we start a new brand so i eventually i eventually gave in and and we and we started prezio and and you know um we're like 18 months into it and it's just the way it's growing it's growing way faster than 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 two times you ever did so it's just really really exciting so what what it, t- tell us about prezio and what it, what it is and, and and you always sort of talk about you've got to have something that's you know, quite different and, and better than what everybody else is doing. So, so what are you doing? So really, I mean, we, we definitely, I mean, I think we definitely had to, I mean, in the, in the sports fabric engineering, in the world of sports engineering, I would be one of a few of handful of people that people know about. So my, so my, my skill set is developing new fabrics and new fibers. And, and so I thought when I start, when I start a new brand, yes, performance goes without saying, but there's already so many good fabric out there that perform well. But I thought where I can really leverage my skill set is bringing sustainability in. Um, 
So I basically spent a year and a half talking to all the world's biggest yarn producers, creating fibers, the best performance fibers in the world that uh, that were using virgin um, polyester or nylons. And I developed them using recycled polyesters and nylons. And then I discovered what new ways to dye fabrics, which basically meant no dyes back in the waterways. I then discovered ways to create fabrics that were biodegradable, um, so would um, completely um, dissolve in soil within 10 years rather than 200 years. So I found all these new inventions that were out there that, that no one was really doing. And mm -hmm. so basically I built the brand on performance um, driven by sustainability. But you know, when we, when we moved to the UK a year ago, um, we just quickly discovered that performance was great and it was well-performing but our sustainability play was what everybody wanted. And, you know, we walked straight into Selfridges, Harrods, all the big stores in the UK wanted us because of our sustainability play. Mm. And that's probably been the golden ticket um, to our brand so far is that the fact that we've developed fibres the world has never seen before, but done them in a sustainable manner, um, way beyond just recycled fibres, but looking at every aspect of supply chain, ethical sourcing, the way we ship the products through to the fibers, the yarns, the dyeing processes, all that we've basically turned it upside down. Um, and, you know, so basically, basically, you know, already we've been approached by a number of people wanting to invest in our brand um, at a very high valuation. So it's, it's just going really well. And we're about to launch next year in the US market. Um, already got some really... Um, some big retail chains on board there. And um, like, I, I believe that, that this new brand is going to evaporate what two times you did very quickly. Um, I think our sustainability play that we're doing and the things we're working on um, two times, you never was as unique as what Prezio is. Um, and I think if you want to succeed in the world of sport or any industry, you've got to be as unique as possible. And I think our brand is truly unique. So mm -hmm. I see yeah. uh, you've, you've incorporated a bit of Tereo there. So for, for non-Kiwis, that's uh, it's uh, Māori language and some of your, your model names there. Yeah, we have. You now we have the um, Arahi collection, uh, which is our top our top run collection. At um, you know, it's, the meaning is to be like is a, a torchbearer. Um, so basically, you know, is 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 the leading light in run and run, run products. Mm -hmm. And then we have an, 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 another range called Hapai. As well, so we got two, a couple of our today married names in there. Um, we did go out and make sure that it was all all fine first, um, yeah. as you do. Um, but no, no, you know, true. I mean, like we 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 aren't. I would never call ourselves a Kiwi brand. Um, we're definitely a global brand. Um, we um, but um, obviously, um, two two Kiwis own it. Myself and my son-in-law. So you know, um, you know, it, it is obviously of, of New Zealand heritage and New Zealand roots. And, and we're, and we're actually our distributor, a distributor in New Zealand is actually Joe jo Lorne. Who many oh, of right. yep. would know. Yep. So Joe Lorne and Amanda Galaraga are, are our distributors in New Zealand and, and doing a great job. Um, you know, already in quite a few, they've only launched there a few months ago and already in, in quite a few outlets in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so, you know, it's great.
Awesome. Oh, Jamie, it's been a pleasure to chat. Anything else, you know, about your your career that you, you you've wanted to get off your chest? You know, you, you've obviously had the the triathlon side of it, the, the highs and lows there, the two times you, the the sort of the the, the little bit of a comeback into triathlon, and, and now this new business. Is, have we sort of covered most of the bases, or any any other sort of um, recollections you want to get out there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say a lot. I mean, I, I would say one thing I've been very fortunate to do i've i've always had careers that i've loved um and that's that's one bit of advice i always give to i always give to anyone particularly though those that are a bit younger that you know don't ever be driven by um opportunities that that come with money go after what you love and what, what you're passionate about and then then normally the money will come if you do a good job you know and and i even even today even at night time now i'm still on the couch looking up you know, new fabrics, new fibers, new technologies. I, I just love what I do. And um, I've just been really fortunate through my whole career to um, to have had a career that I've been passionate about. So, and, you know, and also the sport of triathlon in general, it's um, it's been really good to me. You know, I've got amazing friends, um, you know, all over the world, you know, from Cameron to guys like Yanni Kusto, Yanni and, and a bunch <laughs> of guys all over the world. And I still have good friends who are pro triathletes around the world. It's been good to me, but... You know, I think just, you know, being fortunate to, to love what I do and also being fortunate to have a wife now of uh, approaching 29 years. We've been married for almost 29 years, um, who's been my biggest support and advocate. And, you know, and if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be where I am today. So, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have um, a wife and, and three daughters who are, who've been very supportive and, and have put up with me being away a lot. So, yeah, so very good. Yeah, it's been really good. Love yeah. your work, Jamie. You've done awesomely. Thanks so much for your time. No, but my pleasure. Thanks, mate. Uh, okay, Jumbo, your thoughts? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, I've um, I'm first met Jamie in '96, as you guys might have heard, and that was when he basically made his foray back into triathlon at the Hong Kong race. I was actually before I spoke to him, I was looking at my, my, one of my photo album books, and there was pictures of us over there, and uh, and the whole little squad of us went over to do that race. And later in that year, he went on to yeah, sort of kick on his his triathlon career, and just another example of some you know the Olymp- the tragedy of Olympics um, not getting selected. There's been plenty of other athletes that didn't make teams who were amazing. Like Jamie, as I said in the interview, finished eighth place in the test event, didn't make the New Zealand team. Uh, this was the test event at Sydney. Other athletes like you know, Emma Carney never made teams. We've interviewed another pe- a number of others that didn't make teams. Um, but for him, you know, he turned that negative into a positive and uh, hasn't looked back since in, in pretty amazing business career. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal stuff. Because two times you... Let's be honest, it's one of the big brands in the sport, isn't it, still? Well, not not just our sport. Like triathlons, as you guys will have heard, is, is small fry for them yeah. and for most clothing clothing businesses. But just also the other insight, you know, I think you guys will have enjoyed was just how tough it is in the triathlon market. And these days, a very difficult difficult place to, to make any money. Okay, let's go into Winger, Winger of the week. week. Now, you've got a new rule, John. I've got a new rule, Bevan. And because I, we're, we're a triathlon podcast and, yep. and we've got people on uh, in our Strava group, which is fantastic that are maybe not necessary cyclists or they go on big adventures on the, on not necessary triathletes. So I've made a new rule, Bevan for the winger of the week. You've got to have done a swim, a bike and the run. 
Um, oh, really? Really? Controversial. Yeah. Yep. So you've got to be doing a, a week of triathlon stuff uh, to, to get that. And as it turned out, when I was going through my uh, using random.org to pick out this week's wanger of the week, I think it took me about my fourth attempt before oh, really? I found, found somebody who was actually doing triathlon. And, and that is Lucas Bossman. And he's, he's a part of the Zwift Academy triathlon team. And so he's he obviously must, pretty sharp. Yeah, no, you've got to be pretty legit to to be on that team so uh good on on lucas he is from uh tremillo in the flemish brabant in belgium uh looks like a good strong athlete if we look at the last uh four he's a good weeks runner. he's only he's, he's been, done a 236 marathon oh that that's if that's not just estimated if that's doing it that's that's pretty legit uh that's last great. four weeks he's been averaging 340 k's per week on the uh, that was me, sorry. He's been averaging 200 Ks um, per week. Uh, been doing four runs per week and averaging three swims per week. So definitely a triathlete and pretty And handy. a good runner, but that marathon was done in the Hamburg Marathon. Oh, really? 236, That's yeah. Solid for an age grouper. That is very solid. You do 236 in Hamburg, you only get 91st. <laughs> Jeepers, creepers. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It is indeed. Yeah. Uh, let's see his longest ride that he's ever done, 204 kilometres. So nice work, Lucas Bosman. So we need to look out for that name if you're on the Swift Academy. Must be pretty good. You are our winger of the week. week. And Bevan, and, and I didn't change the rules uh, to enable me to be the highest ranked person uh, on our leaderboard. I was fifth this week, Bevan, um, and I was the first place person to do swim, bike, run, but that's not the reason why I changed it. Well, I'm suspicious. I'm very suspicious. suspicious. Yeah. Okay, John, let's go. Questions and answers. Now, we did get a comment here from a couple of people, but Jordan Blanco was talking about the downhill being considered dangerous, but then Skip Slade actually sent quite detailed. So he says he's racing. No, hold on. We're, we're, what are we talking about here? Vivian? We're talking uh, about Oceanside about, last week. And so Reef being DQ'd, yeah. So at Oceanside, Reef, um, sorry, Skip's done a few times. Back when Rope and uh, Frey and Huddle were the race directors, you don't hear their names anymore, do you? I think they're still, still involved, I think. But no, you don't. Uh, but anyway, Oceanside has three no-pass zones and two speed limit zones. One is a narrow footpath uphill for about 100 metres. For some reason, not posted or enforced on race day this year. It has been in past years. Another no-pass no zone is right before transition when you ride along the edge of the transition fence. It's, a very, narrow, it's very narrow and isn't very wide enough to allow people to pass in this area. And it's not straight, so you have to go slow. The spot where Reef got DQ'd is a 25 mile per hour or 40k limit, uh, at least since I've been doing the race. I believe it came about after there was a death during a race early, in an earlier race. It's well marked, and the athlete guide is emphasized at the briefings. There are signs, there are timing mats at the start and at the end of the zone. The whole thing takes about 20 to 15 seconds, 15 to 20 seconds to ride through. If you can, if you ride that short distance, in a time that indicates over 25 miles, they'll catch you and you'll DQ you after the race. One more thing, there is a digital display radar on the sign on the road. It flashes if your speed is too high and you're um, about a metre high. So every year people get DQ'd at the finish line because their average total speed through the zone is more than 25. And he did come back and he said, bottom line is you can't miss this unless you are oblivious and ignore all the warnings. And Jimmy Riccatello did actually tell Reef that she had been DQ'd. 
So look, this isn't. We're not. I'm not trying to um, come down hard on Daniela. If she just made a legitimate mistake, yeah, she, sure she's owned to up it. to it. Um, so it's not a. It's not a slight on her personality or anything like that. She just made a mistake, and I was just curious as to why that is. And it seems like it's pretty obvious um, and, and legitimate reasons for for having that. So we all make mistakes. Just uh, move on. Silly mistake, but. Especially like, like I get it if you kind of don't really know what's happening, but if they've got signs saying you're going too yeah. fast. Yeah. So that's that's a one on one. When you're full on in race mode, uh, sometimes little things, and, <laughs> and I'm using myself an example, the recent race I did in the little sprint race, I completely overshot the dismount line. I just, just was, I was oblivious to it. I was looking at where I was supposed to be going, didn't even really notice it, and completely overshot the, the dismount line. So, um, Make mistakes. Sharpen up. Okay, yeah. Jombo, your quiz question. Now, the quiz question was, which year did Ironman Europe transfer to being challenge rote? Now, I've got I, my answer. What do you reckon? I am going to go with 2007 or 2009. I'm going to go 2000 and I'll go in the middle, 2008. Uh, I think you're well off. I'm gonna say, I, was gonna oh, say, I should have gone with my bloody at my I was going to say 97. No, I was going to go with my gut, and that was going to be 2005. And I think I, no, I was going to say 2004. And it looks to me like it was 2005. Oh, see, that's when I just came into sport. So I must have just missed this being a thing mm. because I'd never heard of, yeah. We, we, when did we start doing the podcast? 2006. Yeah, 2006, yep. Yeah, because I never remember this being a big thing, which I'm sure at the time it was a big thing. No, I don't think it was. It wasn't gigantic. It probably was in Germany, but um, I don't recall it being a massive thing either. I see. I thought it happened way earlier than that, but there you go. Shows what I know. So what was it, 2005? I think so, but I'm not 100% sure of this. 20, okay. year, 20 years of challenge. Da, da, da. Well, these results only have from 1997. Yes. See, it's also got challenge for 1997. We look back at our 20 years of challenge right. Oh, God, I could be wrong here. Wait a second. Let's go. I can, see, I, can't, I, I couldn't do my, my, my research because then I would have known the answer. And I, th- yeah. Okay. Could have, it could have been 2003. There I'm trying go. to find out. You're talking about something for two seconds. Uh, so, okay. Okay. Last weekend, uh, I ha- ended up having a my. 2002. Weekend. 2002. After terminating. Okay. Here we go. After terminating. The contract in 2001, Quail Challenge Road, was born under the leadership of Herbert, who's the father. Um, the premier was in the success space basically, yeah. So Road remains Road. The fans stayed true to the triathlon 2002. 2002, there you go. Okay. So we're kind out. of actually middle, because I said 97 and you said eight. Mm. So, yeah, so actually, I think I win. You do. You do. <laughs> nice work. Uh, so I had my little mini camp here at the weekend, and, uh, and it was epic. It was four days of mini epicness. Um, we kicked off on the first day with a bit of a run along a beach. It was beautiful. No, it wasn't a beautiful morning. Luckily, the weather was clearing. Um, I got my distances wrong. It was a bit short, so I decided, right, let's, let's throw in a 2K guess your time. And there was some, some good guesses, and there was some, uh, some poor guesses. What did you do? Uh, what did you well, say? I, 
I said, uh, I'm, I said it wasn't a, a speed test, it was a skills test. I said I'd run eight minutes for 2K. Uh, and I ran 751, uh, and I was I was the closest. Um, so there you go. And then we got on Again, our bikes. Again, yourself up to win. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got on the bikes, did a 150k ride around North Canterbury. It was a nice ride. Some cool little places I've never been to. Uh, so I'd recommend people go check out the little road to Muttonau, uh, and also around... Gore Bay, and then there was a nice little road through from a place called Greta Valley through to um, Waikari. Uh, so it was a beautiful ride. So wait, were, you, were you staying overnight or were you coming back to Christchurch no, each day? We were just coming home to our own beds each night, so okay. it was all good. And then day two was possibly one of the hilliest rides I've ever done in my life in terms of how much elevation we got in a short space of time. So the ride was only about 107 kilometres. I think it took us five and a half hours, something like that. My average speed was 20 kilometers an hour but my god we did over 3,000 meters of climbing we had wow. five climbs um, which were each around about six kilometers long and man oh man were they some steep climbs most you know, several of the climbs were averaging like 15 percent for about a kilometer and a half and I was looking there was a few Strava segments where it was up to 25 percent it was mental uh and so a huge amount of climbing uh it was a beautiful day and beautiful scenery but some very tough one anybody in canterbury or christchurch i would suggest you go and check out what we did um it was all around banks peninsula and uh going into lots of little bays beautiful day no no cars like literally no cars it was great back that up the next day i uh, did a 10k run off the bike with that and then the next day we did another long ride, 185 kilometres with 3,000 metres of elevation, sort of pretty much going from near Christchurch uh, across towards the, the west coast and coming over this uh, the, the viaduct at Oterra, um, so going over the Southern Alps, and that's another epic climb. Uh, awesome, awesome ride, beautiful day, and then finished off day four with a 4K open water swim. Uh, should have been shorter, but some of us um, had woeful navigation on the way back, like pitiful. It was, you look at the map and, you know, you, you should have quite a, a straight line both directions. It was like a bloody straight line one way and then this big arc on the way back. Um, we were getting pushed around a bit by the tide and you couldn't see Where because swimming? of the sun. We swam to Quail Island and back. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, I looked at my watch halfway. It's 1.9 Ks and got back and, yeah, it was 2.1 Ks on the way back. So did that and then had another beautiful trail run up around the hills um, and one you should check out, Bevan, as well. I'll, I'll share it with you later on. Nice. But really solid, big weekend. Now I've got to, to regroup and recover. So when when you because when you go to Kona, <laughs> end of May, towards the end of May, the race is on first weekend of June on June the fourth. So so good news is six weeks of big training. Yep, six, six weeks of solid training. Hamstring seems to have come right, which is all good. Now I've just got to get the fitness to to a good place. What's the ambition? Just to race well, yeah. So uh, no placing ambitions or anything like that. Um, just to put in a good, strong performance, you know, that reflects the the fitness that I'm able to muster over the next six or seven weeks. Evan, what's been happening in your world? Well, no, we haven't finished you. You got ahead of ourselves. So let's say thank you to our patrons. Oh, yep. Uh, we have got Eric Stelvio Philip. We've got Matt. It's too hard, Evans and Grant the Spy Petrie. 
Okay, uh, let's say if you want to become a patron, go to www.imtalk.me, go through the process. It supports the show, get a gift, and you're going to draw to win some cool stuff. Uh, if you want to get show email to your front page down the bottom, coaching, coachjohnnewson.com. If you want to check out its epic camps, epiccamp.com. For my podcast, bevanjamesisles.com. Other content, send it to imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so any other goss? Any other goss? No, that was that dominated my uh, weekend. It was a bit, bit of a thumbs up to a couple of fellas. Uh, Hamish Wall, he um, he completed How many the did full it? camp. Uh, we only had a small group. We had a few people wiped out with COVID uh, leading into yeah. it, so it was only a small group. And we, because it was Christchurch based, we had a few people coming in and out, um, just doing um, individual days, which was good. Just sort of boosted the crowd. But Hamish Wall did the whole uh, shebang, and then. Um, Greg Jones also clocked over 3,000 metres um, on one of those rides, 3,000 metres elevation. So it was the first time both of those guys had done that. And then Hamish doubled up and did it on the, the next day as well. So 6,000 metres of elevation in two days was pretty solid. So that, that was pretty much uh, what dominated my week. Looking forward to this week, though, Bevan. We're getting some um, getting some smart bikes installed. Uh, so mean? those are the... Uh, so you know how you've got your smart trainers um, where, you know, you, you've only ridden one once and you didn't really get the, the proper experience because it was an old crappy kicker that didn't work properly. Yep. Um, but we're actually getting the, the the proper bikes, which, uh, you know, like like kind of like a gym bike with the fully adjustable seats, handlebars and everything it's like that. Getting. But it's brand We're getting stages ones. So uh, it's exciting times. Oh, those stages at the gym. Do they? Yes. Are they full, the full Monty ones with power and everything like yeah, that? Yeah, stages, mm. yeah. And you're going to get them so you have the workout videos on them as well. Mm. Um, stage of Smart Bike, is it? Yes. A beautiful ride. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Oh, they might be a little bit different to the ones. Um, oh, is this like a triathlon club thing, is it? Hmm. I'll reveal more soon. Yeah, I've probably pretty... revealed too much already. Oh, he's given away too much. <laughs> he has to give me your first child. <laughs> these ones are a little bit the ones I'm, I'm looking at one online right now and it is a little bit different to the ones at the gym but the, the ones at the gym it's pretty similar really it looks like it's just got different handlebars really um the ones at the gym they're by far the stages bikes are by far the nicest ride you'll get mm. on, on a stationary bike that i've tried and i've tried a few of them over the years mm. i won in, in asia i went to somewhere in asia i was presenting and they had a bike which was trying to be like a a real experience so the bike moved side to side mm-hmm. as you're riding mm-hmm. and almost like funny angles as well it was a total disaster like it, was, <laughs> it was like not fun at all it was so unstable and yeah you, you really you're, you're so consumed by the experience of trying to control the bike you really couldn't get a workout yeah so that was a bit bizarre um oh yeah so any other goss that's it yeah. Well, my goss is I don't really have any goss at the moment. Oh, okay. Here's my goss. You should bike out to Rangiora to get the hot cross buns. Right. A member hot from like, do you like hot cross buns? I, I, I'm not a, I, I don't mind hot cross buns. I, I like them, but I oh. probably would not bike to Rangiora. So for us to bike to Rangiora is probably. 50k 30k, 35k each way, something like that. Yeah. So it's a couple of hours, right? You know, you're thinking an hour there, an hour back, roughly. So. A lady from a gym called Sears Dan, who's also my accountant, a couple of weeks ago, because I love hot cross buns. Like they're probably in my top five foods of all time. A good hot cross bun. Oh, and it's how you cook them, John. First thing you do, chop them in half. Mm. Second thing you do, put them, oh, get your grill firing. The grill is oh. it's not, not your, the grill is firing. You put them in the microwave for 35 seconds, depending on the microwave. Then you put them in the grill 
for if it's firing, it's yeah. like our grill, it's quick. So it's probably 30 seconds in the grill, nice crisp top, shitloads of butter. Not a little bit of butter. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Shitloads of butter. So then the, the bottom bit's soft, crunchy bit on top, butter, OMG, John. So yeah. Suzanne from the gym, she's told me that her baker, by who, where she works, has won New Zealand hot cross bun maker yeah. for the last three years. And I'm like, don't give me the finger. John just <laughs> <laughs> give me the finger. So, so I said, well, she, and she said, I'm going to bring some to you for me. So she bought a pack for me. And I was like, by the time I got home, they were gone. They were that yeah. good. So then I she bought another pack. Grilled. Did, no, no, those ones. The, the second pack she bought me, I did. I showed some patience. I went to her this morning and I said, can you get me four packs for this weekend? <laughs> I'm going all in on hot cross buns this weekend. Oh, that was one of the best things when I was doing Ironman training. Because you know what it's like when you're doing Ironman training. You can just eat like there's no tomorrow. And so a snack for me when I was doing Ironman training was eight hot cross buns. <laughs> and I'd still lose weight. And I can't do that nowadays. I have to contain myself to like two or three. See, I'm not head. a gorilla of the hot cross buns. I like them soft in the middle. I'd rather them crunchy on the outside and soft in the middle. Yeah, but that's and what no, I do, John. No, the you microwave, can't, you, you only grill the top. Oh, so not the Yeah, the you only grill the top. So you chop them in half, put them in the microwave, put the yeah. top under the grill. Right. See? Yeah. Perfection. Mm. Right. Okay. I do life. agree with the butter. You got to go long on the butter. Don't be shy. Mm. Don't, you you need to feel sick at the end of it, team. Yeah. There's that and um, apple crumble with too much cream. Mm. If you don't feel sick at the end of it, you haven't done it right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's why I only have it twice a year. Okay. Anyway, John, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Mendo. Train hard. Train smart. Kia, Kia. Kia.